0: section 7 of men like gods this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by marcus pfeiffer tyson's virginia www.voxwright.com men like gods by h.g wells Chapter the Seventh The Bringing In of Lord Baralonga's Party. Part One The conference broke up upon this announcement, but Lord Baralonga and his party were not brought to the conference gardens until long after dark. No effort was made to restrain or control the movements of the earthlings. Mr. Burley walked down to the lake with Lady Stella and the psychologist, whose name was Lyon, asking and answering questions. Mr. Burley's chauffeur wandered rather disconsolately, keeping within hail of his employer. Mr. Rupert Catskill took Mr. Mush off by the arm, as if to give him instructions. Mr. Barnstable wanted to walk about alone to recall and digest the astounding realizations of the afternoon, and to accustom himself to the wonder of this beautiful world, so beautiful, and now in the twilight so mysterious also, with its trees and flowers becoming dim and shapeless notes of pallor and blackness, and with the clear forms and gracious proportions of its buildings melting into a twilight indistinctness. The earthiness of his companions intervened between him and the world into which he felt like he might otherwise have been accepted and absorbed. He was in it, but in it only as a strange and discordant intruder. Yet he loved it already, and desired it, and was passionately anxious to become a part of it he had a vague but very powerful feeling that if only he could get away from his companions if only in some way he could cast off his earthly clothing and everything upon him that marked him as earthly and linked him to earth he would by the very act of casting that off become himself a native to utopia and then that this tormenting sense this bleak distressing strangeness would vanish out of his mind he would suddenly find himself a utopian in nature and reality and it was earth that would become the incredible dream a dream that would fade at last completely out of his mind for a time however father emerton's need of a hearer prevented any such detachment from earthly thoughts and things he stuck close to mr barnstable and maintained a stream of questions and comments that threw over this utopian scene the quality of some earl's court exhibition that the two of them were visiting and criticizing together it was evidently so provisional so disputable and unreal to him that at any moment mr barnstable felt he would express no astonishment if a rift in the scenery suddenly let in the clatter of the earl's court railway station or gave a glimpse of the conventional gothic spire of st barnabas in the west At first, Father Emerton's mind was busy chiefly with the fact that on the morrow he was to be dealt with on account of the scene and the conference. "'How can they deal with me?' he said for the fourth time. "'I beg your pardon,' said Mr. Barnstable. Every time Mr. Emerton began speaking, Mr. Barnstable said, "'I beg your pardon,' in order to convey to him that he was interrupting a train of thought. But every time Mr. Barnstable said, "'I beg your pardon,' Mr. Emerton would merely remark, "'You ought to consult someone about your hearing, "'and then go on with what he had to say.' "'How can I be dealt with?' "'He asked Mr. Barnstable in the circumambient dusk. "'How can I be dealt with?' "'Oh, psychoanalysis or something of that sort,' said Mr. Barnstable. "'It takes two to play at that game,' said Father Emerton. "'But it seemed to Mr. Barnstable "'with a slight favour of relief in his tone.' "'Whatever they ask me, whatever they suggest to me, I will not fail. "'I will bear my witness.' "'I have no doubt they will find it hard to suppress you,' said Mr. Barnstable bitterly. "'For a time they walked among the tall, sweet-smelling, white-flowered shrubs in silence. "'Now and then Mr. Barnstable would quicken or slacken his pace "'with the idea of increasing his distance from Father Emerton.' but quite mechanically father amerton responded to these efforts promiscuity he began again presently what other word could you use i really beg your pardon said mr barnstable what other word could i have used but promiscuity what else could one expect with people running about in this amazing want of costume but the morals of a monkey's cage They admit that our institution of marriage is practically unknown to them. It's a different world, said Mr. Barnstable irritably. A different world. The laws of morality hold good for every conceivable world. But in a world in which people propagated by fission and there was no sex? Morality would be simpler, but it would be the same morality presently mr barnstable was begging his pardon again i was saying that this is a lost world it doesn't look lost said mr barnstable it has rejected and forgotten salvation mr barnstable put his hands in his pockets and began to whistle the barcarolle from the Tales of hoffman very softly to himself would father Emmerton never leave him could nothing be done with father Emmerton? At the old shows at Earl's Court, there used to be wire-baskets for waste-paper and cigarette ends and bores generally. If one could only tip Father Amerton suddenly into some such receptacle! Salvation has been offered them, and they have rejected it and well-nigh forgotten it, and that is why we have been sent to them. WE HAVE BEEN SENT TO THEM TO RECALL THEM TO THE ONE THING THAT MATTERS, TO THE ONE FORGOTTEN THING. ONCE MORE WE HAVE TO RAISE THE HEALING SYMBOL, AS MOSES RAISED IT IN THE WILDERNESS. OURS IS NO LIGHT MISSION. WE HAVE BEEN SENT INTO THIS HELL OF SENSUOUS MATERIALISM. Oh LORD, SAID MR. BARNSTABLE, AND RELAPSED INTO THE Barkerole. I BEG YOUR PARDON, he exclaimed again presently where is the pole star what has happened to the wain mr barnstable looked up he had not thought of the stars before and he looked up prepared in this fresh universe to see the strangest constellations but just as the life and size of the planet they were on ran closely parallel to the earth's so he beheld above him a starry vault of familiar forms And just as the utopian world failed to be altogether parallel to its sister universe, so did these constellations seem to be a little out in their drawing. Orion, he thought, straddled wider and with a great unfamiliar nebula at one corner. And it was true. The wane was flattened out, and the pointers pointed to a great void in the heavens. Their pole star gone! the pointers, the wane askew. It is symbolical, said Father Amerton. It was only too obviously going to be symbolical. Mr. Barnstable realized that a fresh storm of eloquence was imminent from Father Amerton. At any cost, he felt this nuisance must be abated. Part Two On earth, Mr. Barnstable had been a passive victim to bores of all sorts, delicately and painfully considerate of the mental limitations that made their insensitive pressure possible. But the free air of Utopia had already mounted to its head, and released initiatives that his excessively deferential recognition of others had hitherto restrained. He had had enough of Father Amerton. It was necessary to turn off Father Amerton, and he now proceeded to do so with a simple directness that surprised himself. "'Father Emerton, he said." i have a confession to make to you ah cried father emerton please anything you have been walking about with me and shouting at my ears until i am strongly impelled to murder you if what i have said has struck home it hasn't struck home it has been a tiresome silly deafening jabbering in my ears it wearies me indescribably it prevents my attending to the marvellous things about us I see exactly what you mean when you say that there is no pole star here and that that is symbolical. Before you begin, I appreciate the symbol and a very obvious, weak, and ultimately inaccurate symbol it is. But you are one of those obstinate spirits who believes in spite of all evidence that the eternal hills are still eternal and the fixed stars are fixed forever i want you to understand that i am entirely out of sympathy with all this stuff of yours you seem to embody all that is wrong and ugly and impossible in catholic teaching i agree with these utopians that there is something wrong with your mind about sex in all probability a nasty twist given to it in early life and that what you keep saying and hinting about sexual life here is horrible and outrageous and I am equally hostile to you and exasperated and repelled by you when you speak of religion proper. You make religion disgusting just as you would make sex disgusting. You are a dirty priest. What you call Christianity is a black and ugly superstition, a mere excuse for malignity and persecution. It is an outrage upon Christ. If you are a Christian, then most passionately I declare myself not a Christian but there are other meanings for christianity than those you put upon it and in another sense this utopia here is christian beyond all dreaming utterly beyond your understanding we have come into this glorious world which compared to our world is like a bowl of crystal compared to an old tin can and you have the insufferable impudence to say that we have been sent hither as missionaries to teach them god knows what "'God does know what,' said Father Amerton, a little taken aback, but coming up very pluckily. "'Oh!' cried Mr. Barnstable, and was for a moment speechless. "'Listen to me, my friend,' said Father Amerton, catching at his sleeve. "'Not for my life!' cried Mr. Barnstable, recoiling. "'See? Down that vista, away there on the shore of the lake, those black figures are Mr. Burley, Mr. Mush, and Lady Stella. They brought you here.' They belong to your party, and you belong to them. If they had not wanted your company, you would not have been in their car. Go to them. I will not have you with me any longer. I refuse you and reject you. That is your way. This, by this little building, is mine. Don't follow me, or I will lay hands on you and bring in these utopians to interfere between us. Forgive my plainness, Mr. Emerton, but get away from me get away from me. Mr. Barnstable turned, and seeing that Father Amerton stood hesitating at the parting of the ways, took to his heels and ran from him. He fled along an alley behind tall hedges, turned sharply to the right and then to the left, passed over a high bridge that crossed in front of a cascade that flung a dash of spray in his face, blundered by two couples of lovers who whispered softly in the darkling, ran deviously across flower-studded turf and at last threw himself down breathless upon the steps that led up to a terrace that looked towards the lake and mountains and was adorned it seemed in the dim light with squat stone figures of seated vigilant animals and men ye merciful stars cried mr Barnstable. at last i am alone he sat on these steps for a long time with his eyes upon the scene about him drinking in the satisfying realization that for a brief interval at any rate with no earthly presence to intervene he and utopia were face to face Part three. he could not call this world the world of his dreams because he had never dared to dream of a world so closely shaped to the desires and imaginations of his heart but surely this world it was or a world the very fellow of it that had lain deep beneath the thoughts and dreams of thousands of sane and troubled men and women in the world of disorder from which he had come it was no world of empty peace no such golden decadence of indulgence as mr catskill tried to imagine it it was a world mr barnstaple perceived intensely militant conquering and to conquer prevailing over the obduracy of force and matter over the lifeless separations of empty space and all the antagonistic mysteries of being in utopia in the past obscured by the superficial exploits of statesmen like Burley and catskill and the competition of traders and exploiters every whit as vile and vulgar as their earthly compeers the work of quiet and patient thinkers and teachers had gone on and the foundations which sustained this serene intensity of activity had been laid how few of these pioneers had ever felt more than a transitory gleam of the righteous loveliness of the world their lives made possible and yet even in the hate and turmoil and distresses of the days of confusion there must have been an earnest enough of the exquisite and glorious possibilities of life over the foulest slums the sunset called to the imaginations of men and from mountain ridges across great valleys from cliffs and hillsides and by the uncertain and terrible splendours of the sea, men must have had glimpses of the conceivable and attainable magnificence of being. Every flower-petal, every sunlit leaf, the vitality of young things, the happy moments of the human mind transcending itself in art, all these things must have been material for hope, incentive to effort, and now at last, this world." mr barnstaple lifted up his hands like one who worships to the friendly multitude of the stars above him i have seen he whispered i have seen little lights and soft glows of illumination were coming out here and there over this great park of flower-like buildings and garden spaces that sloped down towards the lake a circling aeroplane itself a star hummed softly overhead a slender girl came past him down the steps and paused at the sight of him. "'Are you one of the earthlings?' came the question, and a beam of soft light shone momentarily upon Mr. Barnstable from the bracelet on her arm. "'I came to-day,' said Mr. Barnstable, peering up at her. "'You are the man who came alone in a little machine of tin, with rubber airbags round the wheels, very rusty underneath, and painted yellow. I have been looking at it. "'It is not a bad little car,' said Mr. Barnstable. "'At first we thought the priest came in it with you. "'He is no friend of mine.' "'There were priests like that in Utopia many years ago. "'They caused much mischief among the people.' "'He was with the other lot,' said Mr. Barnstable. "'For their weekend party I should think him rather a mistake.' "'She sat down a step or so above him. "'It is wonderful that you should come here out of your world to us.' Do you find this world of ours very wonderful i suppose many things that seem quite commonplace to me because i have been born among them seem wonderful to you you are not very old i am eleven i am learning the history of the ages of confusion and they say your world is still in an age of confusion it is just as though you came to us out of the past out of history i was in the conference and i was watching your face you love this present world of ours At least you love it much more than your other people do. I want to live all the rest of my life in it. I wonder if that is possible. Why should it not be possible? It would be easier than sending me back. I should not be very much in the way. I should only be here for twenty or thirty years at the most, and I would learn everything I could and do everything I was told. But isn't there work that you have to do in your own world? Mr. Barnstable made no answer to that. He did not seem to hear it. It was the girl who presently broke the silence. They say that when we Utopians are young, before our minds and characters are fully formed and matured, we are very much like the men and women in the Age of Confusion. We are more egotistical then, they tell us. Life about us is still so unknown we are adventurous and romantic. I suppose I am egotistical yet, and adventurous. And it does still seem to me that in spite of many terrible and dreadful things, There was much that must have been wildly exciting and desirable in that past, which is still so like your present. What can it have been like to have been a general entering a conquered city, or a prince being crowned, or to be rich and be able to astonish people by acts of power and benevolence, or to be a martyr led out to die for some splendid, misunderstood cause?" These things sound better in stories and histories than in reality, said Mr. Barnstall after due consideration. Did you hear Mr. Rupert Catskill, the last of the earthlings, to make a speech? He thought romantically, but he did not look romantic. He has lived most romantically. He has fought bravely in wars. He has been a prisoner and escaped wonderfully from prison. His violent imaginations have caused the deaths of thousands of people. And presently we shall see another romantic adventurer in this Lord Baralonga they are bringing hither he is enormously rich and tries to astonish people with his wealth just as you have dreamt of astonishing people are they not astonished romance is not reality said mr barnstaple he is one of a number of floundering corrupting rich men who are a weariness to themselves and an intolerable nuisance to the rest of our world they want to do vulgar showy things this man beralonga was an assistant to a photographer and something of an actor when a certain invention called moving pictures came into our world he became a great prospector in the business of showing these pictures partly by accident partly by the inscrupulous cheating of various investors then he launched out into speculations in shipping and in a trade we carry on in our world in frozen meat brought from great distances he made food costly for many people and impossible for some and so he grew rich For in our world men grow weary by intercepting rather than by serving. And having become ignobly rich, certain of our politicians, for whom he did some timely services, ennobled him by giving him the title of Lord. Do you understand the things I am saying? Was your age of confusion so like ours? You did not know it was so ugly. Forgive me if I disillusion you about the age of confusion and its romantic possibilities but i have just stepped out of the dust and disorder and noise of its indiscipline out of limitation cruelties and distresses out of a weariness in which hope dies perhaps if my world attracts you you may yet have an opportunity of adventuring out of all this into its disorders that will be an adventure indeed who knows what may happen between our worlds but you will not like it i am afraid You cannot imagine how dirty our world is. Dirt and disease, these are in the trailing skirts of all romance." A silence fell between them. He followed his own thoughts, and the girl sat and wondered over him. At length he spoke again. "'Shall I tell you what I was thinking of when you spoke to me?' "'Yes.' Your world is the consummation of a million ancient dreams it is wonderful it is wonder high as heaven but it is a great grief to me that two dear friends of mine cannot be here with me to see what i am seeing it is queer how strong the thought of them is in my mind one has passed now beyond all the universes alas but the other is still in my world you are a student my dear every one of your world i suppose is a student here but in our world students are a class apart. We three were happy together because we were students and not yet caught into the mills of senseless toil, and we were none the less happy because we were miserably poor and often hungry together. We used to talk and dispute together in our students' debating society, discussing the disorders of our world and how someday they might be bettered. Was there, in your age of confusion, that sort of eager, hopeful, poverty struck student life go on said the girl with her eyes intent on his dim profile in old novels i have read of just that hungry dreaming student world we three agreed that the supreme need of our time was education we agreed that was the highest service we could join we all set about it in our various ways i the least useful of the three my friends and i drifted a little apart they edited a great monthly periodical that helped to keep the world of science together and my friend serving a careful and grudging firm of publishers edited school books for them conducted an educational paper and also inspected schools for our university he was too heedless of pay and profit ever to become even passably well off though these publishers profited greatly by his work his whole life was a continual service of toil for teaching he did not take as much as a month's holiday in any year in his life. While he lived I thought little of the work he was doing, but since he died I have heard from teachers whose schools he inspected, and from book-writers whom he advised, of the incessant high quality of his toil, and the patience and sympathy of his work. On such lives as his this utopia in which your sweet life is opening is founded." On such lives our world of earth will yet build its utopia. But the life of this friend of mine ended abruptly in a way that tore my heart. He worked too hard and too long through a crisis in which it was inconvenient for him to take a holiday. His nervous system broke down with shocking suddenness. His mind gave way. He passed into a phase of acute melancholia and died. For it is perfectly true, old nature has neither righteousness nor pity this happened a few weeks ago. That other old friend and I, with his wife, who had been his tireless helper, were chief among the mourners at his funeral. To-night the memory of that comes back to me with extraordinary vividness. I do not know how you dispose of your dead here, but on earth the dead are mostly buried in the earth. We are burnt," said the girl. Those who are liberal-minded in our world burn also. Our friend was burnt, and we stood and took our part in a service according to the rites of our ancient religion in which we no longer believed and presently we saw his coffin covered with wreaths and flowers slide from before us out of our sight through the gates that led to the furnaces of the crematorium and as it went taking with it so much of my youth i saw that my other dear old friend was sobbing and i too was wrung to the pitch of tears To think that so valiant and devoted and industrious a life should end, as it seemed, so miserably and thanklessly. The priest had been reading a long, contentious discourse by a theological writer named Paul, full of bad arguments by analogy and weak assertions. I wish that instead of the ideas of this ingenious ancient, we could have had some discourse upon the real nobility of our friend, on the pride and intensity of his work, and on his scorn for mercenary things. All his life he had worked with unlimited devotion for such a world as this, and yet I doubt if he had ever had any realization of the clearer, nobler life for man, that his life and the toil of such lives as his were making sure and certain in the days to come. He lived by faith. He lived too much by faith. There was not enough sunlight in his life. If I could have him here now, and that other dear friend who grieved for him so bitterly, if I could have them both here, if I could give up my place here to them so that they could see, as I see, the real greatness of their lives reflected in these great consequences of such lives as theirs, then, then I could rejoice in utopia indeed. But I feel now as if I had taken my old friend's savings and was out spending them on myself. Mr. Barnstable suddenly remembered the youth of his hearer. Forgive me, my dear child. For running on in this fashion but your voice was kind the girl's answer was to bend down and brush his extended hand with her soft lips then suddenly she sprang to her feet look at that light she said among the stars mr barnstable stood up beside her that is the aeroplane bringing lord Baralonga and his party lord Baralonga who killed a man today, is he a very big strong man ungovernable and wonderful mr barnstable struck by a sudden doubt looked sharply at the sweet upturned face beside him i have never seen him but i believe he is a youngish baldish undersized man who suffers very gravely from a disordered liver and kidneys this has prevented the dissipation of his energies upon youthful sports and pleasures and enabled him to concentrate upon the acquisition of property and so he was able to buy the noble title that touches your imagination come with me and look at him. The girl stood still and met his eyes. She was eleven years old, and she was as tall as he was. But there was no romance in the past? Only in the hearts of the young, and it died. But is there no romance? Endless romance, and it all has to come. It comes for you. Part Four The bringing in of Lord Baralonga and his party was something of an anticlimax to Mr. Barnstable's wonderful day. He was tired, and quite unreasonably he resented the invasion of Utopia by these people. The two parties of earthlings were brought together in a brightly lit hall near the lawn upon which the Baralonga aeroplane had come down. The newcomers came in, in a group together, blinking, travel-worn, and weary-looking. But it was evident they were greatly relieved to encounter other earthlings in what was to them a still intensely puzzling experience, for they had had nothing to compare with the calm and lucid discussion of the conference place. Their lapse into this strange world was still an incomprehensible riddle for them. Lord Barolonga was the owner of the gnome-like face that had looked out at Mr. Barnstable when the large grey car had passed him on the Maidenhead Road. His skull was very low and broad above his brows, so that he reminded Mr. Barnstable of the flat stopper of a glass bottle. He looked hot and tired. He was considerably dishevelled, as if from a struggle, and one arm was in a sling. His little brown eyes were as alert and wary as those of a wicked urchin in the hands of a policeman. Sticking close to him like a familiar spirit was a small, almost jockey-like chauffeur, whom he addressed as Ridley, "'Ridley's face also was marked by the stern determination of a man in a difficult position "'not in any manner to give himself away. "'His left cheek and ear had been cut in the automobile smash "'and were liberally adorned with sticking-plaster. "'Miss Greta Gray, the lady of the party, was a frankly blonde beauty in a white flannel tailor-made suit. "'She was extraordinarily unruffled by the circumstances in which she found herself.' It was as if she had no sense whatsoever of their strangeness she carried herself with the habitual hauteur of a beautiful girl almost professionally exposed to the risk of unworthy advances anywhere the other two people of the party were a gray-faced gray-clad american also very wary-eyed who was mr barnstable learnt from mr mush hunker the cinema king and a thoroughly ruffled-looking frenchman a dark smartly dressed man with an imperfect command of english who seemed rather to have fallen into lord barolonga's party than to have belonged to it properly mr barnstable's mind leapt to the conclusion and nothing occurred afterwards to change his opinion that some interest in the cinematograph had brought this gentleman within range of lord barolonga's hospitality and that he had been caught as a foreigner may so easily be caught into the embrace of a thoroughly uncongenial weekend expedition as lord barolonga and mr hunker came forward to greet mr Burley and mr catskill this frenchman addressed himself to mr barnstable with the inquiry whether he spoke french i cannot understand he said we were to have gone to wiltshire, Wil- wiltshire and then one horrible thing has happened after another what is it we have come to and what sort of people are all these people who speak most excellent french is it a joke of lord barolonga or a dream or what has happened to us mr barnstable attempted some explanation another dimension said the frenchman another world that is all very well but i have my business to attend to in london i have no need to be brought back in this way to france some sort of france some other france in some other world it is too much of a joke altogether mr barnstable attempted some further exposition it was clear from his interlocutor's puzzled face that the phrases he used were too difficult he turned helplessly to lady stella and found her ready to undertake the task this lady he said will be able to make things plain to you lady stella this is monsieur Emile Dupont. the frenchman bowed i am what you call a journalist and a publicist i am interested in the cinematograph from the point of view of education and propaganda that is why i am here with his lordship barolonga French conversation was Lady Stella's chief accomplishment. She sailed into it now very readily. She took over the elucidation of Monsieur Dupont, and only interrupted it to tell Miss Greta Gray how pleasant it was to have another woman with her in this strange world. Relieved of Monsieur Dupont, Mr. Barnstable stood back and surveyed the little group of earthlings in the centre of the hall and the circle of tall, watchful utopians about them, and rather aloof from them mr Burley was being distantly cordial to lord barolunga and mr hunker was saying what a great pleasure it was to him to meet britain's foremost statesman mr catskill stood in the most friendly manner beside barolunga they knew each other well and father amerton exchanged comments with mr mush ridley and penk after some moments of austere regard had gone apart to discuss the technicalities of the day's experience in undertones nobody paid any attention to Mr. Barnstable. It was like a meeting at a railway station. It was like a reception. It was utterly incredible and altogether commonplace. He was weary. He was saturated and exhausted by wonder. Oh, I am going to my bed, he yawned suddenly. I am going to my little bed. He made his way through the friendly-eyed utopians out into the calm starlight, he nodded to the strange nebula at the corner of Orion, as a weary parent might nod to importunate offspring. He would consider it again in the morning. He staggered drowsily through the gardens to his own particular retreat. He disrobed and went to sleep as immediately and profoundly as a tired child. End of section seven.